you know, the thing that interests me a lot is the whole process of aging and how we don't talk about it in our society. There's something very profound about our bodies falling apart, you know, as we age. Hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast. Welcome if you're a first-time listener and welcome back if you're a regular. Every week, we try to offer something that will create a little more liberation, love, freedom in the mind, body, spirit, deprogram something unhelpful, make us laugh, make us go, uh-huh, through real conversations with amazing people. And right now, I'm in the middle of doing a series with female artists. Uh, partly because we have a show coming up in New York that's a four days of programming, 32 contemporary artists, sensingwoman.org. You can join the simulcast and hear people like V. Evansler, who wrote the Vagina Monologues and opened this entire conversation around embodiment in a new way more 25 years ago now, crazy, uh, to people who are working at the forefront of women's health, sexuality, sensuality, politics, uh, people who are talking about and thinking about the restoration of spirituality to equal female and male poles in the culture. Very beautiful week, plus evening events. So if you're in New York, come live. And if you can't be in New York live, then please join us on the simulcast. Today, one of the artists who I met through the show, Arlene Rush, is going to talk with us about her art and how she uses her art to start conversations. And the conversations take us in a lot of places to our relationship with our bodies, uh, to our nipples, our breasts, breast cancer, her own journey. We learn so much from Arlene's experience and from her describing what she's trying to do with her visual art. I start by asking her, because she's been in the same studio in Chelsea in New York for decades, what it's like to live with this layered artifactness of being in one place for a long time. There's a sense that artists run at a sort of a higher frequency, a higher vibration, and that when there is an area that needs new energy, the artists will move in that area and gradually raise the vibration. And then gentrification is attracted to that area. And it's always that way. Like art, And it's not just monetary. Like people say, oh, it's economic. Artists can't afford it, but it's more energetic. Well, it's really interesting because I was a welder and when I was looking to find studio space was really, really hard because I needed a fireproof building and someone that would let me weld there. I mean, I looked in places that were really bad, like Red Hook at the time in the 80s. And wow. Hmm. Like you needed a car and a dog <laughs> to protect you, not even just like a car. And I looked in Jersey City. I looked in a lot of places that were not uh, conducive for a woman really to be at. I found this space in Chelsea and I took it and was there for six years. I had to move out quite quickly, which was really, because I did big outdoor sculpture and I had to then place everything or then six years into my career dump things. So it was very disturbing looking back because some of the pieces are like really great. Some of them, I'm not even sure where they are because 
I gave them to people to hold on to for me. And then I went back to find these people and they disappeared. They're like bits of you floating all over the world. There are. And I have no, yeah, because I, I started archiving everything in 2014. And that's when I discovered that a lot of things I couldn't find. But then I moved to the meatpacking district for two and a half years. I scaled down where the Apple store is. And that had a different flavor altogether. I actually loved it. It was very, very gritty, but fun and it was so cool. I just have to say, I loved the meatpacking district, but the studio that I had was not great at all. It was pretty small and the doorway was tiny and I had to change my work based on what I was, uh, where I was, where my studio was. And then being there two and a half years, I moved back to Chelsea, literally across the street from my very first studio. And I've been here 26 or 27 years, I think 26 years. And it's amazing that in New York City, an artist, I don't even, I don't own the building. You know, it's not like, it's like pretty amazing that I'm still here. And it changed drastically. Yeah, you're right now, you're in the heart of the, you know, it's a super tony, gent gentle, genteel. Yes. It's an interesting combination of both letting go, like you make something and then it's handed over and you might never see it again, you're done, versus the accumulation and layering of living with all of your in-progress works. What kind of relationship do you have with completion and your, your ongoing identity? First of all, I have no attachment to my work, like a lot of artists might. I don't. I make it. It's a form of communication. It's my biggest form of communication. I'm learning disabled. The way I feel most comfortable expressing myself, even though I seem very articulate, is through my art. I want to, and there, as I do in life, talking to people, I want to open up a dialogue. I want to open up, I want to bring awareness to things that are happening in the world, individually, globally, around identity, around many issues. So, and that's something that I've always liked talking about important issues, things that were deeper. So in my work, that's what I do, and it's not any different. In terms of completion with my work, if I still have work that I've made from the past, which unfortunately I do, I sometimes change it. You know, I say, oh, I'm going to... Oh, what's that word when you remake something, but it's not remake, but I take something and I rework it and it becomes a different piece. Or if it's an installation piece, I might say, oh, it will work, maybe not better, but it's speaking more to me now in a circle than lined up on the floor or not on the wall. And then I might add elements to it. I might even take it apart, like break, like cut it in half and do something different with it, have it coming out of the wall. Um, so if I have work that's still in my studio that I could see, over time, sometimes I have dissatisfaction with it. Like there's like something missing, something missing. I'm not really happy with this. I need to do something with it. And eventually it will come to me and then there'll be a new piece out of the original. So some works, you know, start out at like 2008 and then it's finished in 2020, you know. It, I have the vision of choreography, like you're dancing with these ideas across time space. 
you know, like you're kind of dancing with a part of yourself earlier that was onto something, but it wasn't really ready to be birthed. That's interesting. It might even be my perception of life and the work changes. Like things that I might have felt complete about, then I might just see something missing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even sure what's missing, but it's not as successful to me as a piece that's finished or just as successful to me. Someone else might love it, but it's just like there's something off. There is one particular piece that I don't know if you've seen it on my website. It's called In Waiting, and it's a life-size figure, a woman that's made out of glass and resin and a bunch of things, uh, materials. But it wasn't with glass when I first did it. And it had a photograph also that was bro- uh, in a frame and the glass was broken and it was on the floor and the piece was looking down, contemplating this photograph. I did sell the photograph separately and uh, it was an addition, but the piece was in my studio and it really had a presence. And one day, I was in someone else's studio and I saw a shattered glass and I said, oh, could I have some of that? I just want to hang out with it. And they said, sure. And they gave me some. And I I started doing work with shattered tempered glass because I loved what it represented. I loved that it was like, it had a danger and it was shattered, but it was glistening like diamonds. So it had many different uh, meanings to it, depending on the viewer. Yeah, if you're not, because we're not looking visually right now, if you go to ArleneRush.com and you find right. this piece in waiting, it's a, a, a figure of a woman sort of sitting on a stool, half sitting on a stool, and she's surrounded by broken glass on the floor and on her torso. And it's part of a, a larger series that includes a lot of work on like Free the Nipple and the Body, it's the Body is a Battleground series. Yes. So- you know, you're working, like, maybe we could just go to that series. Like, tell me about the days after series. Oh, very important piece. And it's interesting that you just are asking about, you're asking about it, because I just picked up working on that last week. And I did more on that series, which I will, it's a very important series. Um, It really has a lot to do with breast cancer awareness, advocacy for early detection, and of course, a lot of other things about beauty and identity and how women are looked upon and their breasts. But that piece I did after I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And that was 11 years ago I was diagnosed. Actually, I finished treatment 11 years ago. I would go for my annual checkup and they would put these colorful, at that time I thought of them as stickers on me, but they're actually skin markers that they use when you have a mammogram. Well, there's technology to these marker, skin markers. There's more than what meets the eye. Actually, new ones that are out now are 3D. There is material in there that will show in the mammogram and the imaging it shows it more 3D, it enhances things. So for years I would go and women would go into these locker rooms or these little cubbies and they would take the stickers off of them and put them on the door. And I always found that to be really interesting and I always wanted to photograph them. Well, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and they're colorful, and they're pretty, and and there's something like cheery about them. So, and it's interesting because it's not a very cheery time. 
So I got diagnosed. I asked a radiologist there. Uh, I told her I was an artist. I've always wanted to have these to do something with them. And uh, can I have some? And she gave me a bunch uh, different kinds. And I went back to the studio and I put them on my body, my breasts, and I photographed myself and uh, did a few shots. And it was the beginning of days after. Now, two years ago, I was supposed to be doing another series to mark my 10 year anniversary of being breast cancer free. And COVID threw a lot of people in, me like extremely so, uh, off balance totally with everything. I never got it together to do it, but la I finally last week did it, you know, so this 11 years later. And also during this whole th time, I needed more skin markers. And they are, one, highly expensive. Two, they will not give them to anybody. You cannot get them. So I, I showed the picture to my breast surgeon and she loved the picture. She said, listen, I said, is there any way you could get me some of these? Cause I want to do another photo shoot. So she spoke to her, the head of radiology on Mount Sinai, who then reached out to the manufacturer Beakley and they were willing to give me whatever I wanted. And they were supposed to do an interview on me and we were supposed to be doing some breast cancer awareness and advocacy. It just never happened it, because of COVID. It dropped, you know, the pandemic, it dropped. Then we spoke again, we were supposed to do it. And my camera broke and on it, you know. I know, that's the way things go also in COVID. So these are the stickers they put where you feel the lump. No. No. So, well, yes and no. So, well, I will tell you, they're very sensitive to the word stickers. They are skin markers, just to let you know. They're very <laughs> sensitive to it. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, Medi medical <laughs> skin markers. They're, okay. they're just skin markers. <laughs> even, right. though they, even though they have butterflies right. and, and uh, they're very pretty. other yeah. things on them. Flowers and... So th there are many different kinds. It's hard to see what each one looks like based on how I put it together on my breast as like a painting or uh, a collage. But there are many different shapes and each shape is used for different reasons. So now as, because I had some limb nodes taken out, I, have, I had a lumpectomy, I have a scar, and then I have a nipple. So each one of those has a different marker when I go for a mammogram. So they're very specific, plus some of them have 3D imaging coded within the marker. The markers have metal in them. They're quite technology-wise, they're incredible, but I've taken them into a totally different realm. They don't look like this scientific uh, medical thing. That no, they look like a Paisley Indian influenced pasty. They're, I mean, it's a really interesting uh, thing. You said you op you wanted to, with your art, open a conversation, and here you are opening a conversation on the machinations we go through in a way to render our bodies readable to the machine. Uh, you know, it's, it's such a, a beautiful conversation. Also, of course, then we're getting right into women's health and breast cancer and 
all of that stuff just from this one picture. Early detection. And interestingly enough, prior to that, I did other work and it was sort of, it was part of a series called Carnival, which is removal of flesh uh, in Latin, um, removal of meat. And I did that to speak about women's bodies, sexuality, how breasts are looked at in our society. Uh, I photoshopped my breasts off. I also bandaged myself up and photoshopped it to look flatter. And I wanted to have a conversation about this. This is prior to having breast cancer and just being around women who had breast cancer, my mother who had breast cancer, doing workshops with, at that time, the Creative uh, Center for Women with Cancer, which is now called the Creative Center, which is not only about women. So I really, and I did hospice work volunteer hospice work. So I, always, I had an interest in it also from a woman's perspective because of how women are looked upon and what breasts really mean in our society. I was just interviewing, talking to someone yesterday, and she said that you can't say breastfeeding on social media. So her clients are advised to say chest feeding. Why can't you? I didn't even know that. It, it gets censored because they can't distinguish between <gasps> breasts and pornography and breasts and breastfeeding. Oh, my God. So if, this, if the algorithm sees the word breast, it, it, flags it. doesn't allow it or it Ugh. censors the ad. Because it's so weird. So they're like algo speaking, coming up with new words to, to get by the algorithmic censor. We're going to talk a little bit about that at the show. Where are you now with the relationship to breasts and 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 your body post cancer? I mean, that's a long journey. That's a hard journey for most people. Yeah, it's very interesting because I had radiation treatment, and I wound up getting, um, and I had a lumpectomy, and then I had radiation treatment, and the radiation treatment created uh, lymphedema in my breast. So my breasts got hard and bigger. So interesting, the breast that had the surgery is two sizes bigger than the breasts that did not have the surgery. And at the beginning, it was really difficult for me. It was, I was very self-conscious. I, you know, I didn't know what bathing suits to wear and what, uh, you know, now it's just like part of my life and I don't even really think about it. You know, I, I've, I've made jokes about it also, like one breast being smaller. Someone likes a smaller breast, I got that. I have a bigger breast for someone who likes a bigger breast. So uh, <laughs> I'm all things. It's like, you know, if you can have your hair blonde on one side of the part and dark on the other, it just turns sideways. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, was a, I used to tell my breast, my surgeon then, I said, hey, how'd this happen? And he said, well, that's from the radiologist, even though the radiologist will say it's from the surgery. So... <laughs> So uh, I also will say I became very good friends at the time with another woman who was going through radiation treatment who had a double mastectomy, and she was quite a bit younger than me also. I did a photo shoot with her after her treatment was completed. We went out, we got very pretty underwear and did some photos for her to feel sexy even though she didn't have breasts. And she wound up, interestingly enough, she w was someone who became, she was also an artist, is an artist, not was. And she also did the runway. There was a runway, women who had 
mastectomies, and they would walk down a fashion runway uh, with no, with them having no, you know, no breasts, a mastectomy, and and wearing the fashionable clothes and being, hey, this is who I am, and this is okay. It was very powerful, and she, her partner, was really fine with no reconstruction, and she didn't want reconstruction. She owned her body, and she felt really good about her body. And it was a journey for her. The whole thing was quite a journey, but it was really beautiful to watch. One time, at, I went to um, the Burning Man Festival. In, the first time I went in 2004, I think, maybe 2003, I joined a camp called Critical Tits. And they did this ride on the Friday of the burn where thousands of women would you know, go topless and you know, be in their skin. And before that, the whole afternoon was women sitting in circles, painting each other's bodies, like painting breasts. And I remember a woman coming up and sitting across from me, and I painted a peacock feather across her missing breast, right along the scar, uh, right up and over the shoulder. Oh, beautiful. And, uh, and she just sat there weeping, mm. you know, to be seen and witnessed yes. and beautified in that moment. So it's I've, I'm just really resonating with that. Let's, let's move on to the, um, the fragments, parts, and pieces, because that contains, I think, at least one of the works you have in the show and also the chocolate. Three. Oh, they're all in that set. They're all in that collection. Yes, because it's under uh, vaginal. Okay. So I have work in a few places because they could fit into different categories. So if someone's looking for work vaginal, they'll see it in vaginal. But if they see it in the piece I did for uh, called Shachita, was I was commissioned to do that piece, but I use vaginal form, so it's under uh, fragments, parts, pieces. So you want to talk about this? It looks like you've got two different basic underlying forms here, or maybe three, I'm not sure. Three. Okay. I use the hands and arms, and I use the vaginal form. So can you talk about this and what prompted you to do this vaginal one? Just as a woman growing up and seeing how men viewed women, and not from my family life, but from the outer world, the vaginal form had a different meaning to a man than it would to me. And it was, you were objectified, you were, uh, if you were older, it was not good, and it was like useless, and even to the point where like there's a point where you're like in menopause and then you can't have baby so there's no nurturing quality to it uh, so it has many elements to it and the first piece i actually did i call and the slang like people can't call it a vagina it's like oh you know it's just uh have different slang words for it so one of them is the box and that's the first one that I did, that it is on my website, and it is uh, a life cast of myself that I put into, in surrounded by fake fur, black fake fur, and the box is rusty on the ins outside, and it was gold gilded, but falling apart on the inside. And so I... When I did this cast, I realized the form itself, the outer, the outside of the form, the outline, had a beautiful petal-like shape. And it related very much to nature. And it, I knew I would do more with that. 
and uh, one day down the line. So the first piece I did, I think it was in 1998, and I didn't do anything until 2006 again with the form. It was a form that I kept around, and I said I need to do something with it eventually because it looked like nature. It looked like it was beautiful. It wasn't something like, ooh, you know, or something to objectify. I think when I was, I had a one-person show in Philly. I was turning 50 years old, and I made 50 of them, and it's called Some of the Whole. It was the beginning of using these shapes that people found very beautiful as a form, as a shape. And I wanted it to be beautiful, but not beautiful in a way, a sexual object. Even the, And then I use steamens in it to show the yin and yang in terms of all of us having male and female in us. I didn't want to separate it. Uh, I wanted to show that we're all one and we should not objectify people and particularly females because that's really major issue. And I had it a lot growing up uh, because I grew up very quickly and I looked much older than my age and I did not understand what was happening, how the outside world was responding to me. It was very uh, challenging. So it's something that always stayed with me. Yeah, this, I mean, they look like anthurium a little bit, like an inverted anthurium a beautiful, organic, smooth shape. So again, go to the site and also go to Sensing Woman and look at the pieces that are up for sale in the show. Yeah, this thing about coming of age and not knowing or not anticipating how the gaze on you will shift as you go from child to woman, and then particularly if it happens to you young, you know, that that's still informing your work. Tremendously. Plus I was a tomboy and I had a twin brother. So, and I grew up in a household that I was not, it wasn't like gender, like you're a woman, you do this. You know, my father ironed my clothes for me. He boxed with me, he taught me how to throw a football. My brother and I wrestled. I dressed him like mm -hmm. a, dressed him up as a girl and had him walk around <laughs> as a girl <laughs> and put a wig on him, my mother's wig. And, um, and I used to fight his battles. I used to protect him. So I was really small, but I was really strong. And I never thought of roles. I really didn't until life, <laughs> life told me roles. And then the thing about being approached in the world, I mean, there was a point where, you know, I, I would go, I was a teenager and I'd go out dancing and men would always look at my breasts. And so I started wearing button, button up man tailored shirts. So they wouldn't look at me, but no matter what I wore, they were staring at me. And it was really uncomfortable because I felt like I was an object. So I used to stare at their crotch and see how they felt, you know, and they were really uncomfortable. So <laughs> and they were really uncomfortable. But I wanted to like, you, you can't do that. I'm not all, I'm not about being, having breasts or a butt. And that's how the world did approach me. You know, a lot was about that. And it wasn't only me. And like this whole Me Too era, I mean, there was a time I was working in another industry, other industries to make money. And I went into the design industry because 
there were basically women and gay men. And I knew nobody would bother me there at that time. So I was like, oh, I'll do this because nobody will bother me. And I could wear whatever I want and not be, you know, not be harassed. But in today's day and age, I mean, I'm going to be 67 next, uh, next month. So it's a perspective on where I come from, why I'm saying that. And the times I grew up, it was very different than now. Mm. I know. I, I hate to, I know. I'm like, uh. <laughs> I like to think of them being very different. I don't think the, the daily harassment is as much. I don't feel that at all. Like It's definitely a generational difference with my with my daughter and even my my stepdaughters who are in their early 20s it's a very different world but you know this idea i just want if you're a man who's listening to this i want you to imagine if you had to structure your whole life around what you wore and where you went in order to avoid being harassed what that would feel like and and the and the crotch staring is just a micro example that just becomes the soup you're kind of swimming in and it also f- forms or has the potential to shape a woman's energetic body, like how she holds the world at bay or protects herself and what she's willing to express or what can get into her, you know, so, so there's a whole longer arc thing. It's not just the overt stuff. It's then how we respond to it and hold it and how it like you, you managed to stay exceptionally creative and alive and continue to talk to it. But I think a lot of people shut down because the risk of being seen is just too uncomfortable. And yes, but I, I, you know, it's, it might have a lot to do with how my, where I, my family and the support I had and how I was looked upon there because I wasn't looked upon as an object and my mother was a strong woman and my father was respectful and kind and didn't even, even when my, my mom had cancer and she had a double mastectomy. And I saw my father care for her and still love her and still be attracted to her. It wasn't about her breasts, you know, and she had nice breasts, but it wasn't about that, that he loved her and, you know, and was attracted to her. So it was very, it was very touching to see that. But because I grew up in that kind of environment, I think that saved me. What's his name? Your dad? My dad's name was Mo. Morris. Wow. So let's just say thank you, Morris, for raising such a beautiful and balanced woman. Yeah. And about your brother, are you guys still close? Does he support your work? I I, I have to say he just recently passed away, my twin brother. Oh, I'm sorry to know. So, and it was a sudden death through COVID, uh, because of COVID. So uh, it was just in May that this happened. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty recent, but he was not at all a womanizer in any way, shape, or form. He respected women. He cared about women. Was he also an artist? No. He was in the healthcare profession, though he was a creative. He grew up, when we grew up, I did art, and I did art my entire life. I never didn't do art. I never had this thing, when did you decide to be an artist? I only had, when did I decide to be a professional artist, and that was a decision I had to make. But my brother was a musician. So we grew up with him playing all different instruments, playing the guitar, playing the flute, the drums, but he had a guitar. So that was part of, you know, and we, we both have flutes and, <laughs> but he was a lot better at it. I think the whole, the whole being a twin is such a, you know, there's a whole body of research on what that's like and the, and that bond that's very 
special? The interesting thing is when we were infants, we had our own language. I learned, I happened to have learned how to speak, talk before him. And I used to interpret from, to my, from my parents. And then I always knew when he was lying, because he used to lie a lot when we were growing up. So they used to call me in and I always knew, I would ask him the question and I knew if he was lying or not. So we had this connection that, yeah, how could you not, like you came into the world together from inception. I mean, you're side by side sharing this water warm place, you know, um, food and everything. I mean, there's something about it, yet we were extremely different politically in many ways, extremely different. So, uh, and his life was much more traditional, conventional in ways with growing up, you know, having children and not me, but he has great children. I, I feel like- but your auntie. Yes. Auntie. Oh. This, I mean, this is, I love that you went and talked about your family because like you, I don't think you can take people out of their context and their lineage completely. Like I, I could treat you as like, oh, I, I'm fully baked, professional artist sitting and working in my cool place in Chelsea. But that's not the the whole story. It's like you're this multidimensional. I love I loved hearing about that. Yeah. What are you asking now? Like what's your inquiry now? What are you working on? I'm doing uh, more on the body as a battleground. And days after, I have another photo shoot this weekend. I have a, like 200 photos to go through from what I did not last weekend, but the weekend before. I will send you the two that are done that are not on my website yet, just so you can see them. I'll email you them. But I will be uh, doing finishing work on a lot of it and doing another photo shoot this weekend on it. You know, the thing that interests me a lot is the whole process of aging and how we don't talk about it in our society and the difficulties or what it is that happens to our bodies, the changes that go on, and what we need to look at as we go through it and accept or, or how we feel about it. It's not, you know, we come into this world, there's birth, there's sickness, aging, and death. And I'm looking a lot particularly at my age, particularly going through this pandemic, uh, what's happened in the world. It's something I'm very interested in talking about and bringing awareness and having opening up a dialogue that is okay. It's not about just let's do Botox, let's do fillers, let's do this lift, let's do that. There, there's something very profound about our bodies falling apart, you know, as we age. I take really good care of myself. Nobody, you know, I, I work out regularly, I eat really well, but still is falling apart, you know. It, it's all part of it. And some people don't want to talk about it at all. And I want to have a dialogue about it. You know, it's very, there's a lot of, uh, it's very humbling. I could say that much. And it's very real and it, everybody's affected. And of course, women are looked upon differently in the aging, you know. Yeah, there's a there's sort of a piece around accepting the decay and fighting it at every, you know, like I'm going to do all the things that keep me supple and strong and healthy, but uh, but I'm still going to die, okay? And and like this is the the dialogue around aging is 
uh, not just around self-worth and value, but it's also a dialogue around it's coming to an end. Do you want to? How are you going to use this precious life, you know? Yes, exactly. And it's an interesting thing that, uh, you know, I did a few pieces uh, before COVID and during COVID on that. You know, I, I want to do more. And, you know, I see what my body, the changes in my body. And, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with people doing Botox or lifts or, and, you know, to look good. It's just that if you're doing it to try to avoid the process of what's going to happen, that we're going to die, <laughs> that's not going to, that's not going to do it. Guess what? <laughs> you want to look good. You have money. You want to spend your money that way. It's totally fine. You know, if I had a lot of money, I probably do a bunch of things, you know, who knows? You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I, I do understand how people could get obsessed with it. And then you start looking at people and they look like they're from Mars or something. Yeah. Outer space. They seem so uh, distorted and they don't look human anymore. What what kind of conversation do you want people to have on aging? What, what are the elements that you want to bring to the forefront? Well, one is that it happens to all of us. Mm. I, I do think when we think think about that, there is a connection that we all have, and it could bring people together. There's a lot more uh, compassion we could have for the process and patience for others. Mm. We're going to lose er basically every mostly everything bef along the way if we live long enough. And, you know, some people have sudden deaths. Um, but it is a conversation that does bring you to how do we live our lives? What kind of contribution do we make to the world? And, you know, people have these thoughts about aging, changing. I hear people that are really young talk about, I have younger friends that are doing Botox and all of that. And I'm like, you look great. Oh no, I want to, you know, it's, it's different than when I grew up. It wasn't around. So at least I don't think it was around. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's the kind of thing that people just avoid the inevitable. And I think it's something that's really important to embrace because we're not going to live forever. And what are we doing with our lives? And to let people know it's really okay to, to feel what we feel about it. You know, it's, it's not an easy thing. Nobody talked about it. I was growing up, nobody talked about it. I'm talking to a lot of friends now, not even in the art world that, oh, how are you? Oh, I'm okay. Well, what's going on? You know, aging. Oh, okay, I get it. You know, but we don't, people are afraid to even talk about it. Well, there's a certain like pathos and wistfulness that often comes with the conversation. Like, it's not just, how oh, I don't want to say like, if I, you know, I talked to my, my, a lot of my friends were, you know, late fifties, early, early sixties. And you know, the guys in particular, like they're becoming really conscious of the fact that they're no longer like, you know, eyes aren't lighting up and going to them when they walk in the room. Now, right. now I probably felt that at 45, you know, <laughs> oh. or whatever. And they're feeling it athletically and all of that kind of stuff. And sexually also, I'm sure. And sexually, yeah. They had, they go through, by the way, P.S., go listen to the episode on menopause, andropause. <laughs> right. They also start losing their hormones at a certain point. But when they talk about their lives, I hear less about what they're creating or going to create in the future and more about like they become more and more anchored in the past. It's like if I put people on a continuum of past and future, 
you know, you want a good groundedness, but you basically want to be in the now with an awareness of your ground and with a kind of a vision or an ear open to what's happening in the future. And I feel them pulled backwards away from their present with a much more of the lens, like what person of your awareness is turned to the past and what portion is turned to the future. And I feel like that is, that's what's real aging. It's like, I don't care what's happening with your body. That's a pain. It's annoying. Sorry. It's just a thing. It's a thing. Part of the but thing. Like, but when your attention goes to my past and what could have been or what should have been or what, what I, you know, when that happens, then you've, then you've crossed over into a, an aged mindset. And I feel that I, the difference I notice is people who are having a great time in their late 50s and early 60s or 70s, they're all still creating and imagining a new future and participating. There is. And they're sexy. Yes. And there, you know, it's funny. I've never, it just happens that I never felt invisible. <laughs> I've never, I haven't felt that way yet. And, but I know many women have, and I have older friends that have. And some of that is not even anything to do with one's looks. It has to do with one's energy, energetically speaking. What, if you're vibrant, and you could be vibrant to the day you die, you know, to old age, so to speak, old age. I was even Googling what old age is considered, what age category. What is it? So there's two categories in old age, and it's 60 to 75, and then 75 to another a um, whatever that became another old age category. They, they labeled it differently because I have a friend who's 84 and we have conversations of she could care less that she's 84 years old i mean she's not being older she has no problem with it at all but we do have these interesting conversations she is also an artist so and she's open to having all these conversations about aging and and what that's like and you know i i kind of remember things that she would tell me because she's how many years she's like 17 years older than me or something and so i remember stages she went through and things that she went through as she was getting older and i go oh i remember that and i yeah that that to me also you know i so it's like it's to me it's great to have friends of all ages but then i have some male friend well i have one male friend in his 90s that will not talk about any sickness whatsoever he does not want to hear, like, how are you doing? Oh, well, my, you know, my knee is really bothering me, and I might be having knee replacement. It's like, well, all right, enough of that. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, are you in denial or what? <laughs> you know, that this could happen? You know, so it's kind of interesting that some people just don't even want to talk about it at all. No, no, for sure. Like, I grew up in a hypochondriac with a hypochondriac grandmother, and so, like, the, the impact was that her daughter, her children won't talk about illness at all. It's taboo because it's so boring. And I think the thing, if you're like in love with ideas, like, of course, your body's going to break. That's good. And look, interest. now, personally, I love science. And so I love like hearing how things work and new cures, yes. and what's going on, how the like, what's a fascinating machine, you know? Right. And you could learn from other people that are going through it. That's another thing. Like I, I have gone through a lot of physical stuff. So I feel like I'm this encyclopedia to help people. Aww. Like, you know, like you could come to me and I could, I'm not a doctor, but I could give you information and what to ask and what to look for. And as you go along, people have no clue. Because I am very curious, 
I ask a lot. One of the reasons why I chose the doctor I did, the surgeon for my breast cancer, my primary care told me he will answer all your questions and he will be very patient with you. And I said, great. You know, that's the, that's the direct, that's who I want to be on my side. We are coming to a close. And I just want to say that uh, I was just finishing some reading on happiness and how happiness is not pleasure. It's meaningful. It's having a meaningful life. And that the two key ingredients were creative expression and doing good for others were the biggest indicators of whether you lived a meaningful life. And you certainly embody those two things. Oh, thank you so much. And it's so, so true what you're saying, particularly, you know, giving and creating. I've been quite stuck in this pandemic with creating the way I used to. I'm not as prolific. I'm still working, but I'm thinking a lot more than I am creating. So, uh, and I find it very difficult because it's always been my savior you know, for a happy mindset. So, but thank you so much. And thank you for having me in the show. I really, I'm really excited about it. I hope we do really good. Thank you. And thank you, Arlene. You can learn more about Arlene's work at sensingwoman.org, where she has a few pieces for sale. If you like her art, I'd love for you to purchase it through Sensing Woman, because then 50% of the proceeds go to support women's reproductive rights and intimacy justice in general. If you'd like to learn more about bias in education and algorithmic bias and censorship on women's health, we did an episode with Jackie Rotman from the Center for Intimacy Justice, and that was super interesting. You know, how does the technology influence what we're allowed to see and what we're allowed to communicate about our experience in female bodies? I'm at the.rose.woman on Instagram. My company, Rosebud Woman, you can find at rosewoman.com. We make beautiful products to support intimate health and wellness, sexual health and wellness, all kinds of good things for the body, as well as books to support a reverent lifestyle towards yourself and the planet. So that's what I have for you this week. I leave you with this blessing that you love your entire body from head to toe, And with a quote from Beatrix Ost, who was on one of our earlier episodes, also an artist in the show, where she said, in your body is a good place to be. Have a great day.